at 3.30 a.m. on September the 30th, 1882. The Mississippi steamboat Robert E. Lee caught fire 30 miles north of New Orleans. The captain discovered it and told his first mate to rush through the saloon and down every corridor to wake everybody up. Strangely, some became angry at being rudely awoken. They thought it was a drunkard or a practical joker. Some were amused. They laughed until you could hear them screaming in terror as the flames overcame them. Others heard the warning but just couldn't believe it and waited to hear it again more clearly. But as the young man ran down the corridor, his message was harder to hear. In another few minutes, they too were swept down into a frightful death. But there were some who heard the warning and believed it to be true. They woke from sleep and made their escape to safety. And this is the way the world treats the warnings of God. Some become angry with the straight gospel. Others are amused. It's, it's entertaining. Then there are those who hear the gospel and then they gradually cease to hear as they wait for a convenient season to set things straight with God. There are some, though, who hear God's warning and accept Jesus into their lives, putting on the garment of, salva of salvation and escaping a burning hell. Well, God also warned Pharaoh that he must listen to the Lord and act by releasing the Israelites from slavery. He sent a series of increasingly severe plagues on Egypt, but each time Pharaoh stubbornly refused to give in despite the misery and huge cost to his people. And you'll probably know about the plagues of blood and frogs and gnats and flies and boils and hail and locusts and darkness and death. And they teach us some important lessons about the Lord. Firstly, they teach that God is almighty, that he holds absolute power over everything he has made. As Moses explained in chapter 9 and verse 29 before the plague of hail, God performed these wonders so the Egyptians may know that the earth is the Lord's. He is almighty. Secondly, the plagues teach that God is jealous, that he will not share his glory with anyone else. The Egyptians ignored God and put their confidence in gods of their own invention. And God will not tolerate this. And each plague was directed against a particular Egyptian god to demonstrate its powerlessness. We read in our text in chapter 12 and verse 12, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Thirdly, the plagues teach that God is just, that in his righteousness he deals with people according to their sins. 
Pharaoh was a cruel and wicked despot. In his rebellion against God, he deliberately tried to destroy God's people. And he stopped at nothing. Slavery, servitude, even slaughter. And therefore, when God afflicted them, he was giving them what they deserved. He's a God of justice. But fourthly, the plagues teach that God is merciful. That he saves the needy when they cry out for deliverance. You see, the exodus was set in motion by the prayers of God's people as we read this in chapter 2 and verses 23 and 24. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant. The plagues were an answer to prayer because by God's mercy they resulted in Israel's rescue from Egypt. And then finally, the plagues teach that God is sovereign, that his mercy and justice are his choice. The plagues differentiated between God's people and Pharaoh's people. The Egyptians suffered whilst the Israelites were spared. God chose to place his special favour on the Israelites, even though they did not deserve it. Look at our text again in chapter 11 and verses 6 and 7. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites... Not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. He's sovereign. He does what he wills. And you know, each of these lessons has a practical implication for us. Because the God who sent the plagues against Egypt still rules over all today. You see, since he is, he has the power to help us in every situation we face. And since he is jealous, we mustn't rob him of his glory by putting other things before him. He must come first in our lives. And since he is just, well, we can trust him. We can wait for him to judge enemies. Since he is merciful, he'll save us when we cry for help. And since he is sovereign, he is to be loved, worshipped and obeyed by each person. But now the end of Israelite slavery was near. We read in chapter 11 and verse 1, now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. The tenth and final plague would be so devastating that not only would Pharaoh allow God's people to leave, but he would drive them out completely. 
And we even read in verse 3 that the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. Pharaoh was now way out of step with the views of his own people and even his officials. And that's often the way with tyrants. They focus so exclusively and relentlessly on their own interests and how to advance them that they lose touch with reality and the well-being and views of their people. And we read about the tenth plague of death in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 11. Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. The Egyptians were obsessed with death and the afterlife. And they made elaborate arrangements to try and prepare for the life to come. Their god was the god of Osiris, whose name meant the mighty one, he who has sovereign power. His assistant was Anubis, the god of the underworld. They claimed that Anubis supervised the embalming process and guided the dead through, during their passage to the afterlife. But the death of Egypt's sons, and not Israel's, would demonstrate that God alone is the Lord of life and death. He is the one who gives life and who takes it away. But it wasn't any son that would die. We read that it was the firstborn. It was the oldest in each family. Once again, demonstrating God's supreme sovereignty over life and death. It would be obvious to the Egyptians. It affected every Egyptian family, from Pharaoh down to the poorest servant. For God does not discriminate on the basis of age, class, upbringing, natural ability, and so on. And the choice of the firstborn is also connected to the relationship between the Lord and Israel. Listen to what Moses was told in chapter 4 and verse 22. This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, the firstborn son was given special status in both Israelite and Egyptian society, which meant they were the primary heir and received the greatest share of the family inheritance. And you see, God wanted Pharaoh to understand that Israel held a special place of privilege and blessing among the nations in his eyes. Not that they deserved it, of course. But it was God's choice. To Pharaoh, the Hebrews were merely slaves, but to God, they were beloved sons. 
Pharaoh wanted the Israelites to continue serving him as slaves, but the Lord wanted his people free to worship and serve him. And in this struggle, there could be only one winner. And so Pharaoh had a stark choice. Let God's firstborn son, Israel, go free, or lose his own firstborn, along with every other Egyptian firstborn. And the fact that the firstborn animals also died was, perhaps, because so many Egyptian so-called gods were depicted as animals. And one of the major purposes of these plagues was to demonstrate God's absolute sovereignty over and his judgment on all the families for the sins of their leader. Nevertheless, all of Egypt was involved in enslaving and exploiting the Lord's firstborn, including their attempts to drown all the male Israelite babies in the River Nile. The nation was warned time and again to listen and obey the Lord as one plague followed another, just as God promised, but they didn't. But actually, God's justice runs much deeper than merely the fact that they ignored God's warnings. In fact, the firstborn sons deserved to die because they were by nature sinners. And in fact, that's exactly the same for all people everywhere. The Bible says in Romans, actually, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages, the penalty of sin, is death. You see, the question isn't if we're going to die, but when. And people need to consider this today. For no one knows when the Lord will call them to himself and hold them accountable for their acceptance or rejection of him. Now, of course, some of those firstborn sons were very young, not having reached the age of understanding of their sin. And some still die very young today. Yet God is a merciful God, as we learned earlier. And we can be reassured that the Lord deals very mercifully and graciously with infants and the unborn who die before reaching the age of accountability. In chapter 12, we come to God's instructions for the Israelites for this tenth plague. Look at verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. A new calendar marked a new beginning in the life of God's special people as a new nation. Like the previous plagues, the Israelites would be spared the effects of this tenth one. However, this time, action was required on their part to be saved. Why? God's judgment was because of sin something that both Egyptians and Israelites were guilty of. 
if an Israelite family ignored these instructions, they too would face God's wrath for sin, expressed in the death of the firstborn. But if an Egyptian family heard about these instructions and chose to obey them, they also would be spared from this tenth plague. But as we look at these instructions, we need to understand the bigger picture here. The lamb that was to be slain and its blood daubed on the door frames to save the firstborn in the household pointed forward to an even better sacrifice, a greater sacrifice, that of Jesus Christ, whose blood would be shed as he died on the cross to save all who would place their faith and trust in him as their Lord and Saviour. As John the Baptist said in John chapter 1 and verse 29, when he saw Jesus walking towards him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as the Apostle Paul announced in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Each household must select a lamb, in verse 3. And if a whole lamb was too big for them, they were to share one with neighbouring households, verse 4. But it couldn't simply be any old lamb. It must be, firstly, without defect. Verse 5a, without defect. Now, selecting a lamb free from any physical defect wasn't to do with how nice it might taste. As Douglas Stewart in the New American Commentary writes, the meat of an animal with a split ear or a blind eye is not affected by the defect. Thus, the reason for demanding perfection rested not in the quality of the meal, but in the symbolic purpose. The animals served as a reminder of the eventual deliverance that a perfect God perfectly provided for his people as part of the process of making them holy like himself. Proper relating to God requires perfection. And so choosing a lamb with some defect because, well, it's going to get slaughtered and eaten anyway, demonstrated a don't-care attitude towards God and his instructions. God expects perfection, and nothing less will do. A reminder that God also expects the very best that we can offer to him the best of our love and our devotion to him, our time, our energy, our resources. He expects the best from us. But a lamb without defect also pointed forward to the Lord Jesus, who in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. He alone 
was able to go to the cross to bear our sin and the punishment we deserve because he alone was without sin. He alone is perfect in every way. As the Apostle Peter stated in his first letter, chapter 2 and verse 22 about Jesus, who committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. It must be a lamb without defect. Secondly, it must be a year-old male, in verse 5. A fully grown lamb in its prime. And we remember that at 33 years old, Jesus was still a young man in his prime. Yet a man whose life was cut short suddenly and violently when he was nailed to the cross. In verse 6, we see that the animals were to be kept from the 10th to the 14th day. No doubt with the greatest possible care to ensure no injuries occurred during that time. This may well have impressed on the people even more deeply the fact that this animal was going to be offered on their behalf. And then at twilight, probably the time between sunset and darkness, every household must slaughter their animal about the same time. For this was to be a nationwide act demonstrating the unity and community of the new beginning of a new nation. And then we learn from verses 8 and 9 that the lamb was to be roasted in fire, not boiled, not eaten raw. Eating raw meat has obvious health hazards, of course. Concerning roasting the lamb, it was the quickest, simplest way to cook it, and also, perhaps, symbolic of God's judgment of sin. But Warren Wearsby notes that it's not likely that the Jews had vessels large enough for boiling a whole lamb, but even if they did, it was forbidden. The bones would have to be broken, and the meat in cooking would separate from the bones. The bones were not to be broken, nor were pieces of meat to be carried outside the house. It was important to see the wholeness of the lamb. And you will recall, no doubt, that despite the intense suffering that our Lord endured at the cross, not one of his bones was broken, a point specifically made by one of the gospel writers. We read also in verse 8 that the roasted lamb must be consumed with bitter herbs, reminder perhaps of the bitterness of their slavery but also a reminder of the bitterness of sin and its eternal consequences also bread made without yeast now that's a quick method of making bread i understand to remind the israelites that they must be ready to leave egypt as soon as they were given the green light as we read in verse 11 of chapter 12. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
And then they were also told in verse 10, do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. Now, many Israelites might have been tempted to save some of the meat for the journey. But this would have violated the symbolic sense of the meal, indicating that those who save the meat both distrusted that God would provide for them the next day as they left Egypt, and also that God's deliverance was an immediate, once-for-all rescue of his people. And that reminds us that Christ's once-only sacrifice is sufficient for all our sins. He offered himself once for the sins of many. And there's nothing more that we can do to gain salvation except trust him by faith. And then going back to verse 7 of chapter 12, we read this. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Now this act was absolutely key. For we read in verse 13, The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. You see, daubing the lamb's blood on their doorposts was a visible sign that they had obeyed the instructions they had been given. You see, the lamb was a substitute. The lamb died so that the firstborn in that household would be saved. Philip Riken puts it like this. On the first Passover, the Israelites huddled in their homes, waiting for God to come in judgment. That night, he would claim a life from every household in Egypt. But the children of God were saved by the blood of the Lamb. Death passed over them. And the reason death passed over them was because they were under the blood. When God came to the home of an Israelite, he could see the blood on the door. When he looked at it, he said, in effect, someone has died in this house. The penalty has been executed. And we can surely see the parallel here. Because similarly, Jesus Christ is the sinner's substitute. He shed his blood on the cross, taking our sin and the punishment we deserve so that we can be saved from sin's eternal penalty in the lake of fire and spend eternity in heaven with our Saviour. The Bible is clear in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Sin 
warrants the death penalty. Blood must be shed. And you know, good works, religious ceremonies, monetary payment of any kind and so on, can never pay the penalty for our sin. The penalty is death. We read, in, we read these words in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 18 and 19. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Think back for a moment to that fire that broke out on board the Mississippi steamboat. It wasn't enough for the passengers to hear the warning and even understand the warning. But they had to act on it. They had to act on the message to be saved. And similarly, hearing and even understanding why Christ went to the cross doesn't in itself save you. You have to act on the message that you hear. And just as the Israelite could not be saved unless they applied the blood to their doorframes, so a person today cannot be saved unless they apply the shed blood of Jesus Christ to themselves by turning from sin, coming to the Lord Jesus and asking him to come into their heart as their saviour and Lord. The blood must be applied. And so I close by asking this question this morning. Have you applied Christ's blood to your heart? Have you put your faith and trust in him and in him alone for cleansing from sin? Now we're shortly going to remember and give thanks for Christ's sacrifice for us by sharing a simple meal together. But it's a meal of great symbolic significance for all who truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. You see, our perfect Lamb of God suffered and died in our place. He's our substitute. He shed his blood so that we can be rescued from sin's eternal penalty. And that rescue only takes place as we place our faith and trust in him. And if you are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour this morning, then you are welcome to share in this meal as we eat a little bread, which represents his suffering and dying body, and a little juice, which represents his blood that was shed for you and for me. Shall we close with a moment of prayer? Heavenly Father, as we've remembered this event that took place 
those thousands of years ago, we see the significance of it for us today as it points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood upon the cross at Calvary that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Father, we thank you that you did that. You were willing to sacrifice your son so that we might have eternal life. We thank you for that. Lord, may we know in our hearts this morning the certainty that comes through trusting Christ for salvation. May we know that we have applied the blood in our hearts and then share in that time of fellowship and joy and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we share communion together, we're going to stand and sing, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins.
Please take a seat.